Everything is timed so fortuitously. Kathy, my wife, told me this week she was listening to Diane Rehm on NPR. And Diane Rehm, in years of going and attending church services, has determined that 11 minutes is the ideal sermon. <laughs> and with about exactly what's ahead of me, I may uh, not quite get to that. Uh, but that's it. By the way, one joy I would like to share. I, I was thinking how much the music at our services here at the UU Church um, enrich. And can you imagine being here without it? And the work that Pete Driscoll does is uh, just needs to be... <laughs> uh, absolutely enjoyed, and uh, it was just—it's just wonderful. Thank you, and Dave Breeden and, and the choral group today was also just such a treat. <laughs> was, uh, again, I can't imagine the services uh, without that. But as Sherry uh, pointed out, we are in the midst of, of an election year when. Uh, we're so much more aware of the things that divide us. I, the elections, of course, don't create those divides. They've always been there. They just lift it up. But the same is true of, with religion. Why are some of us so naturally religious conservatives and others of us naturally religious liberals? Um, and it comes intuitively to us. Uh, why do we have the opinions that we do? And I'm a scholar of religion and particularly a psychologist of religion. And these kinds of issues um, interest me, and fortunately for me, there's research being done across the country, and I wanted to sh take a few minutes and share a little bit of that. Um, first of all, we do know, of course, that family of origin is a big factor in how we end up thinking uh, religiously, and it's true that whether we end up as what I might call someone who falls into the seeker quest um, category, or we are very conventionally, conservatively religious, or we become wholly non-religious, the single largest shaping influence was what we picked up in our household and the way that guided how we think and, and feel. Peer influence, of course, educational level. Can I also point out environmental stress? From the first time Homo sapiens uh, emerged in the savannas of Africa, we have lived in stressful environments. Uh, for our security and our safety, and this is not only just our physical safety, but social relationships and interactions. If you go county by county in the United States, and you begin to determine, how would I determine stress levels by employment levels, income, medical, um, incarceration levels in those, these communities, etc. And you, on a, a scale, a sliding scale of level of stress, and color in the county on that stress level, that will map 100% over church attendance levels um, or lack of church attendance levels in those counties. So environmental stress and um, conventional religiosity um, are uh, very much um, in connection. But I'm gonna weigh in a little bit further. And I had, for any of you who might have gotten one of these, you know, um, a, a typical sermon wouldn't have a handout, but teachers give handouts. And I have one to help you, because I am now going to take as few minutes as possible to uh, go through this just a little bit. But I delivered this talk, or a version of it, at Rice University in Houston last month. And the focus of that conference was on individuals who self-identify as spiritual, but not religious. I want to look at three categories, and so I put up at the top, I put SBNR for that. Some of us would consider that someone who considers religion a quest, a journey, not a destination. Um, this category is individuals who do not, 
who are very spiritual in the sense that they feel drawn to something more than sensory, something more than worldly, but they're intellectually flexible about it and they don't expect to find once and for all authority. In the middle category, I put those for whom religion is central to their lives and they do find authority, authority through a church tradition, authority through a biblical text, and finally on the right, individuals for whom religion is not um, a high interest in their life and they would consider themselves in aggregate non-religious. Now a thought experiment for everyone in this room. If you were forced on a questionnaire to check one and only one of those three categories, which would you be checking? And I can almost guarantee in this congregation that all three categories would emerge. Probably compared to other congregations in town, the middle category a little less, but I'll bet that most of us feel that we at days in our lives alternate between one or more of these categories. In some little periods, we find ourselves um, combined and finding authority in a religious heritage and tradition. And there might be reasons we're um, not attending that kind of a church today uh, and in a more, uh, I, I would say, open um, community here. But we might vacillate a little bit between being the quest or seeker or sometimes called spiritual but not religious, the conventional, the non-religious, and we may go back and forth. But psychologists have spent quite a bit of time studying these. And I want to share just a little bit. And I'll, I'll do it with this, especially if you have one in front of you, it doesn't need to take long. We vary in every complex way of thinking or feeling. No two of us are exactly alike. Everyone here today has a mind of our own. Psychologists do what they can to find ways of talking about the way we differ. And the major one that we do is something called the Big Five Personality Traits. Those of you who might have been at John Joe's presentation, he brought this up. I put on the back of this page a quick little definition. There are five of them. Openness to experience, which is the tendency to be imaginative, curious, um, interested in novelty. It, the um, other end of the spectrum is being very consistent and cautious in, in our ideas and thoughts. Conscientiousness is the second, the tendency to be organized, disciplined, efficient, as opposed to being careless and uh, easygoing. Agreeableness, the tendency to be trusting, helpful, cooperative. Extroversion, to be sociable or assertive. And finally, it's often called neuroticism, but it means um, levels of emotional stability. We know that in the United States of America, conventional religion is highly correlated with high agreeableness and high conscientiousness, more so than the others. But being non-religious is more highly correlated with intellectual openness, and also, you'll see that the spiritual but not religious is highly, coordinated, or highly correlated with high openness. So there's more mental flexibility in the intellectual conceptions and again, a constant playfulness. People who are high in openness tend to be creative. They do tend to be more liberal in their social and religious views. Uh, it's equated with intelligence and it also has a high level of wanting to expand upon experiences that you've had and interpret them and to reinterpret them. 
and to um, somewhat playfully. I'm going to come back to this in one minute. I want to spend one minute on the measure called authoritarianism. If I have one little thing I can share today, it's this concept. Now, when I hear the word authoritarian, I instantly think someone who wants to be bossy, the individual who just wants to be in charge. It's, it's really quite the opposite. Authoritarianism was defined as individuals who readily want to be in a situation that has top-down authority and feel more secure and um, comfortable and confident when there is authority that they can follow. I also define this on the back because the definition has two other parts. Um, being authoritarian is not only being comfortable and easily submitting to authority, but it also has the notion of wanting to display conventional behavior that it's very important to be seen as within the uh, bounds of conventional um, and traditional styles of comporting oneself, and somewhat of a wariness of outsiders, and more troubled with outsiders. Now, I don't think it, it's too hard to know. I don't have non-religious down here because I know of no actual published study that has done that. I think they would be quite low on authoritarianism, but because I have never seen that in print, I left it off. But we do know that it's a big measure of a difference between those in the spiritual but not religious category and those in the conventional. And I bring this up because there's an interest. I get asked this time of year <laughs> a question. How do you account for the fact of the overlap of people who are so conservatively religious, the far religious right and the far political right? Why is there such a big connection? Because if you really think about it, the United States with Christianity being 90 plus percent of the population, there's nothing in Christian teachings that would say be politically conservative. There's nothing in political conservatism that mandates being religiously conservative. And I don't think it's either one of those causes or the other. I think both spring from the authoritarian personality set. Um, so I don't think the connection is, is each other, but I think those who feel most comfortable with authority, authority of text, church tradition, or authority governmentally, I, I, and want to display conventional behavior, wary of outsiders, I think gravitate to the far right in religion and far um, right in politics. One other connection. I don't know if you were aware that the more likely you are to attend a church congregation in the United States, the more likely you are to have racial prejudice. This um, has been known in social science for 60 years. It's a very kind of disturbing thought. Why would churchgoers be more racially prejudiced than non-churchgoers? It almost it doesn't make intuitive sense, and yet it shows up again and again and again. When social science researchers have also included the authoritarianism part of, in those questionnaires. It's the authoritarian personality traits that account for the racial prejudice in the churchgoers, not the church itself. So authoritarianism is an important concept. Again, it's submission to authority and readiness to do that. It's wanting to display conventional behavior and not being seen as eccentric in any way, and wariness of outsiders seems to be something that does traffic often with conventional, especially religion on the far right, and is, I think, responsible for the gravitation towards conservative politics and towards um, often uh, prejudice towards uh, outgroup members. 
A quick few things I'll go through more quickly. I don't think it'll surprise you then to see that when we measure for uh, whether someone more is interested in conforming to the group, collectivism, or emphasis on individualism, we see a slight tendency for non-religious and the spiritual but not religious to have more of the individualism. It's not that they're that high on that, by the way. It's that the conventionally religious are quite low in it and making the um, distinctions. Deep moral foundations I'm going to drop to the bottom. People on the religious left, uh, the most uh, liberal and the non-religious, tend to view morality in terms of protecting people from harm and caring for them, and also tend to see morality in terms of justice and fairness. Conservative religion puts an emphasis on something else that has meant something to humanity throughout the centuries, obeying authority is seen as a prime moral good. Loyalty to group, loyalty to authority, and purity and sanctity, avoiding behaviors that make one impure or uh, less sanctified. And this is of high concern. One last little thing that I'll, I'll pick up and then I can um, uh, flip over and, and go to just a few last comments I wanna make. Uh, on intelligence, um, it is true that when we give whatever intelligence uh, measures are, what they exactly, how they define intelligence and how they measure it. When we do give them, we do find that the non-religious are higher in intelligence than the conventionally religious. I don't have anything down for the spiritual but not religious because I've never seen an actual study uh, in that category. But because they're high in openness uh, and have higher levels of education overall, I think that it's fair to assume that, but I've never seen it um, in a published study. But another issue is the use of analytic reason. And one thing we do know is that those who find themselves non-religious and wholly secular um, are more likely to use what we might call analytic reasoning, um, a kind of objective, interested in what's quantifiable, measurable, can be put into even, well, um, mathematical formula um, and statistically analyzed and to use analytic reason. I'm gonna spend just one little minute to point Finally, we start to see a spot where the spiritual but not religious, the questers, the seekers, begin to veer from the non-religious. Here, there's less use of analytic reason. And we do know, if you flip over, if you have the page, um, those who are interested in ongoing spiritual quest, spiritual seeking, who also are spiritual if, even if they aren't, uh, have a relationship with a... Um, religious tradition, they tend to have higher belief in the supernatural, the magical, to have more fantasy, to have more imagination and interest in subjective experience. And they also, we have a little scale on how likely you are to ever feel connected with things beyond yourself, and we call that self-transcendence. Non-religious are quite low on that. Conventionally, religious are high in some of the component parts, what we call the subscales, but the spiritual but not religious, the, the seekers, the questers, often will get lost in a task and can let go to an experience very readily, more so than the non-religious. Um, we call that self-forgetfulness, or uh, and, and can more easily identify themselves in a cosmic or ecological perspective, you know, to go beyond themselves, a transpersonal way of viewing themselves. And so I want to just finish by saying, why can, are the non-religious 
And the spiritual but not religious are those who view religion as a quest and, and a journey and, and are constantly seeking new light. Why do they start to differ on, on, on these kinds of things? And why, too, the difference with conventional religion? Because the, the non-religious and the spiritual but not religious do share some things. They're higher in overall intelligence, the openness to experience, the wanting to examine experience. But on the one hand, the non-religious keeps examining the experience in an analytic, quantitative, what can be physically measured. And the spiritual but not religious are interested in the questions for which sometimes hypothetical thought, thinking in terms of the abstract, thinking in terms of metaphysical thought explanations. And I have three ideas that might shift someone from the non-religious to the spiritual but not religious or quest orientation. And the first is the experience of positive emotions. All religion traffics in emotion. Most religion in America traffics in fear and guilt. And fear and guilt have predictable influences on our personality. They tend to cause tunnel vision. They restrict our engagement with life. They even cause us when you, fear, you have fear or guilt, you pull back from engagement. And again, you have more limited cognitive and you desperately want to seek um, group conformity and group solidarity. And group solidarity means more than anything when you're under fear, right? I believe that the spiritual but not religious, the quest, the seeker side, is more prone to emotions of joy and, and wonder. And I won't prolong this a lot, but they do just the opposite. Rather than seeking us to, um, the positive emotions of joy and wonder cause us not to seek avoidance of life, but to seek approach and connection with life around us. They also encourage thinking that is sometimes speculative, hypothetical, thinking in terms of the largest possible way to explain something. What I mean is, what, if we see a beautiful sunset, how is it that we live in a universe that can give rise to such vast beauty? It's not an analytic type of thinking, but it's an appreciative one, and it's one that gets us thinking in terms of, if you will, metaphysical, cosmic sense of ourselves in the universe. It also gives rise to a sense of appreciation. Most ethics is built on obeying authority. It's based on following rules. But there's another kind of ethics that comes from empathy, compassion, feeling connected with life around us. And when under the positive emotions, for one little moment we let go of utilitarian what's in it for me thinking and appreciate life in its own right, giving rise to ethics of compassion and ethics of appreciation and it's a different kind of way of being ethical than the ethics of obedience um, and rule following. I might throw out genetic predispositions. I won't go into this too much. But we all carry in us DNA strands that code for certain things. And new research is showing that those of us who more naturally have serotonin and dopamine circulating through our brains and larger amounts of it respond to experience with more richness, more intense vitality than those who don't. And finally, prayer and meditation in various other altered states that teach us to let go of the analytic reasoning for moments, to feel more connected with life around us, and feel that the ego itself is a, of a very arbitrary borderline and isn't the final distinction to be made in life, but that life is more whole and connected, 
Um, these kinds of experiences lend also to a movement away from the non-religious towards the spiritual but not religious. I think if I meant I was running a youth group at a church, I would spend more time working on the positive emotions, and I would also spend more time, I think, with contemplative prayer and, and meditation practices uh, to help encourage that. But I thank you for, for listening to me because here's my final point. We all have minds of our own. No two of us in here were born with the exact DNA. Our neurochemistries, our even neuroanatomy operates just a little different. The big five personality traits are mostly determined by social experience, but about 40% of our variance in them is genetic. We are minds, minds of our own. And I'm thinking now finally to something, a gospel we don't hear as often, but in the gospel of Thomas, Jesus is asked, how do I find the kingdom of God? Now, most of us are, are familiar within the book of John where it says, there is no way but to the Father but through me. And there's a very singular answer to that uh, kind of question. But in the book of Thomas, Jesus says, the way that you can go, go that way. The place you can stand, stand there. Have a mind of your own. It is reported that the final words of the Buddha, his final counsel, was one simple phrase, be a lamp unto yourself. Okay? You and only you can decide what's true in religion for you. <laughs> you and only you can make growth in spirituality for you. Be a lamp unto yourself. Social science research is clear. We do vary. And these various styles of being non-religious, conventionally religious, or the more questing spiritual but not conventionally religious are not just three intellectual options. They actually correlate very neatly to three different personality types, three different clusters of personality traits. And we in this room vary in them. And I think um, the, studying these things has given me more appreciation for our diversity in them. But I'll conclude by going back to the words of Jesus in the book of Thomas, the way you can go, go that way, where you can stand, stand there or the words of the Buddha, be a lamp unto yourself. That we have minds of our own in spirituality. It's fun to explore all the reasons why we differ so much and why there's uh, the differences we have, even in this congregation here, the great differences. But it's also finally something to be celebrated and then taken as a responsibility. Where we can stand, stand there. The way we can go, go that way. Thank you. <laughs>